Coming up on today's show, I'll be reviewing one of my favorite films from 2019, Knives Out, with Steve Wise and Julio Diaz. This is a top three movie of the year for me. If you haven't gone to see it yet, definitely go check it out. And we don't get into any spoilers, so feel free to listen to the entire episode and you won't have the movie ruined for you. I'll also be joined with Brittany Least, who starred in a film that you might have heard me mention once or twice on this podcast, The Parker Syndrome. And finally, I'll be joined with artist Sam Sawyer to talk about her very first animated series that she's working on called Salem. It's a jam-packed episode of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, and it starts right now. It is Thursday, December 5th. Hopefully you've all recovered from your Thanksgiving food coma. And welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. Coming up on today's show, I've got not one but two guests here to talk about what might be one of my top three favorite movies of the entire year, Knives Out. Sitting across the table from me is the writer, director, and producer of Survey, as well as the programming director for a little convention here in the Pensacola area called Pensacon. Mr. Steve Wise, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you, Derek? Good, good. And also joining us is the marketing director for Pensacon, Mr. Julio Diaz. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing well, Derek. How are you? Good. It's actually good to be doing this podcast in person this time as opposed to being over the phone like our last one. Yes, definitely. So we're here to talk about, as I said, what might be one of my favorite movies of the entire year, Knives Out. It's a new murder mystery whodunit film written and directed by Ryan Johnson, most notably known for whether you like The Last Jedi or not, which that's a whole separate discussion. <laughs> uh, he wrote and directed this movie. So we'll start with Julio. What, how did you initially hear about this movie? Because I, I didn't see a really a lot of fanfare around it leading up to its release. I definitely had seen some online buzz about it, but then you're seeing the trailers and the posters pop up in the theater, that sort of thing. Because, of course, I am at the theater just about every week at least. Uh, but, yeah, there, there started. I started hearing the announcements of casting. I follow a lot of the movie news sites and things like that. So there had been some, some news popping up along the way about who had been cast in it, what the film was, that sort of thing. Well, I'm not sure if it actually played at film festivals, but I was seeing a lot of discussion of people who had seen advanced screenings of it, or at least people, industry insiders. And there was a lot of talk about this before it hit the theaters and that the early word was really positive and uh, understandably <laughs> I can see why <laughs> I saw a brief commercial about it on TV and it, it looked like a lot of fun. You know, the classic murder mystery type movies are normally really fun I, Clue is one that instantly pops to mind, though I think that's really more of a parody mm -hmm. than an actual whodunit, which is Clue is still a really good movie, in my opinion. But then I saw the casting with Daniel Craig and Jamie Lee Curtis, and I, it just looked like a really fun movie. And then I saw they were doing the advanced screenings here at the AMC. And funny side story, I actually won the, I guess you'd call it the poster contest. <laughs> Interesting story because Julio, you had told me that they didn't hand out the posters. Yeah, I the saw first it night. the first of the two nights that they did the advanced screenings, and of course, before the film, there's a little video that pops up with 
Ryan Johnson saying, hey, everybody, thanks for coming to my movie. And by the way, you got a poster when you came in. And look on the back. And if there's a sticker on it, you've won the, the prize. And the entire theater was like, where's my poster? I didn't, I, how can I enjoy this movie if I didn't win? It was, it, and then everybody sat down and enjoyed the movie. But it was, it was this funny moment of the entire theater just kind of like laughing at each other, basically. Well, the way I had gotten the poster was I had my ticket scanned and they're like, oh, you can just grab a poster over there at the table if you want. So I grabbed one, didn't really think much of it. Right before the trailer start, the manager comes in and says, hey, if you guys grabbed a poster, check the back of it because there's a sticker that says who done it on it. So I turned it over and sure enough, that was it. And then we saw the Ryan Johnson video and I was like, oh, that would have been a much cooler way to find out. <laughs> yeah, they were probably trying to make up for having messed up the previous night. So they were they probably didn't even know the video was there mm-hmm. until people started coming out of the movie and saying, hey, we didn't get our poster. And then by the time I walked out of the theater, one of the managers, Shane, was there with a handful of posters trying to catch everybody. If you want a poster, here you go. We've got the posters. So I do have a poster. Yeah. But uh, but it didn't have the little whodunit sticker on it on the back. It's a it's a really cool looking poster. It's got the entire cast in the middle, and it's even got a cool tagline that says "Hell, anyone of them could have done it." Yeah, I think like it's it, I think it's the just the eleven by seventeen of the full full mm-hmm. size uh, twenty. I should know the size. I deal with movie posters for a living, but I can't remember the standard movie poster size. All of a sudden, twenty four by thirty six. That's it. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I've got uh, several different sizes of uh, uh, the movie poster for Servi at my house. <laughs> <laughs> had to had to create them for different different festivals and events. The award winning movie poster for yeah. the oh, award winning yeah. yeah, congratulations on Thank that, you. by the way. That yeah. was great. Yeah, this was uh, the second award that we picked up for the poster. Actually. That's awesome. I mean, it's a, and I'm not saying this just because I worked on the film, but it's actually a really cool looking poster because you don't really see posters with that type of art style anymore. well the the artwork was done by roland paris mm-hmm. and um it was phenomenal and you know i kind of took it and did some cleanup work on it yeah, but uh, <laughs> but yeah we uh the prodigy film festival uh based out of manchester england uh just this past uh, sunday uh awarded us with that and if i may uh we won two more awards for acting for uh, Gabby Faulkner for Best Young Actress and Chris Kubiak for uh, the the award goes to it, or it's called uh, Best International Supporting Actor because we are considered international <laughs> you know, across across the pond. So he's not at all going to be insufferable over that. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Chris. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, well deserved. Yeah, and to, to Gabby, and Gabby as well. So, yeah. yeah in her first film. So, yeah. Yeah. That's no, absolutely. So, transitioning back to Knives Out, we'll, we'll start with Julio. What were your overall thoughts of the entire movie? I, I loved it. I'm with you in that it's, I don't know the top three, but definitely top five of the year for me. Uh, just from start to finish, it's just completely absorbing it as a, Traditional whodunit Agatha Christie style mystery, except set in modern times, so you don't have this period of it all. It's it's very much set in present day, and present day politics play a role. Mm-hmm. Present day technology plays a role, so they don't have the out of oh well, nobody could know who possibly did that because there's no video. No, they have to they have to deal with the fact that video <laughs> exists and cell phones, cell phones exist <laughs> and, and and all of that sort of thing. Uh, it's it's really twisty. It really does keep you guessing, even though technically they tell you who done it about 
a third of the way through the film. It's not, that's not as simple as it seems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But above and beyond that, it's hilarious. And that's why I think people keep going to Clue when they talk about this movie, because Clue is a funny whodunit. This is a little bit more of a serious whodunit than Clue is, but it's every bit as funny, if not funnier. Well, Clue was a cartoon, you know, basically it had, you know, the the characters are not meant to be taken seriously. They're caricatures, you know, based on a board game. The whole movie's a parody. Right. But Knives Out, uh, it's really social satire in a lot of respects. And you have people who are representative of different aspects of our culture. Mm-hmm. And quite often the negative aspects. And so it kind of parodies that. But you you also have a very sympathetic treatment of the characters, in particular the, the lead. Marta. Who, Marta, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which uh, we're going to try very hard not to give out spoilers. <laughs> yeah, normally I wouldn't care, but this is one of those movies that if you haven't seen it and you hear the spoilers, there's really no point in watching it because it's about the twist. But... I guess it's okay to say since we already kind of said that she's the the she's the main character. Yeah, you go in expecting Daniel Craig being the detective to be the main character because that's the way it always is with these types of movies, and it kind of subverts that, which, which is another thing that I like about the movie that it it uses the Agatha Christie murder mystery formula and then just twists everything around where he's like, wait, okay, it shouldn't be going this way because it should go this other way based on everything I've seen before. And, but yet it works. It subverts that in the best possible way Mm -hmm. because it it makes you think this is this great detective. And then it makes you think that he's totally incompetent. (laughs) And then, and then as it turns out, no, he actually does know what he's doing. At one point, it's like, okay, he's the hero, and then, oh, he's the villain. No, well, maybe not. <laughs> so you, you don't really know. I mean, because because the way that the, the, the story twists and turns, where it's taking you. And, and so without, again, without spoiling uh, specifics, um, it's a fun journey. And, and I'm, I was very pleased with the way it turned out. Well, going back to what you said about the, the social satire of it all, I want to give credit where it's due. My friend Jay Michelson, uh, who's a writer for the Daily Beast, somebody I went to high school with, actually, uh, said on on Facebook about it that it was the most seen ever satire slash critique of whiteness in history. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought that was such a great line, but it's absolutely completely valid, too, because it is, it, especially with having the the heroine being a, a Hispanic immigrant, that that whole aspect of it, from everything from the the alt-right troll kid to the aging Lothario uh, cheating husband. To, <laughs> it, it, there, there are all of these white people stereotypes mm-hmm. yeah. about right. this movie. Well, you guys mentioned- they're just the worst. <laughs> you guys mentioned in the satire, the scene that jumps out to me, and again, it's not really spoiling anything, but the scene when they're all sitting around the fire and they're talking politics. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I thought it was great that, because <laughs> everybody's had that, argument with their family or they have so many different personalities that have different beliefs and politics sometimes come up and I'm thinking I actually thought of this after Steve you and I went to see it it's ironic that they released a movie with that type of scene the day before Thanksgiving yeah <laughs> <laughs> well and, and on that note also you know Ryan Johnson got 
criticism, right or wrong, for The Last Jedi for being too woke and being, you know, incorporating. We can just say that criticism was wrong. But yeah. Right, right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, so it's easy to kind of say, oh, he's taking pot shots at conservatives and the alt-right and all that. But he takes just as many pot shots at the left in this movie. And oh, the Tony Collette character. She, oh, absolutely. So clearly she was supposed great. to be like the low rent Gwyneth Paltrow. Of the <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she is so funny. I mean, she's just really hilarious. When I was telling Steve after we went and watched the movie that her facial expressions <laughs> told her entire story more than her words or anything, mm-hmm. her facial expressions were on point the entire movie. She's such an underrated actress in general. I'm still mad that she didn't get an Academy Award nomination last year for Hereditary because she yeah. was just amazing in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, there's some just some of the criticism in there is just so wonderfully subtle too. <laughs> like the fact that every different family member thinks that Marta's from a different <laughs> South American country. Like it's never the same one twice. Oh, yeah. Her family came from Ecuador. No, it's from Uruguay. Paraguay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brazil. Yeah, Brazil. And I don't think they ever actually do say what country they're so. really yeah. from. No. I don't think she's from Brazil because I think they were speaking Spanish, not yeah, yeah, Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, is more to the point exactly that they're, they're so up their own rear ends that they mm-hmm. yeah. don't, don't know the difference between Portuguese and Spanish, basically. Well, and still speaking on the satire, I have to mention Daniel Craig. Oh, yes. Because he was amazing in this movie. And you mentioning the, you thinking he's the good guy in the beginning, but then he might be the villain, or you think he's this world-renowned detective, and then he has that little bit of, you know, Inspector Clouseau, like the, the donut moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which apparently... I was reading a little bit about that and Ryan Johnson said he wrote that scene or you know, that dialogue and didn't know if it was going to work or not. And he gave it to Daniel Craig and he said, what do you think? Is this, is this too silly? And he read it. He's like, no, keep it. (laughs) Well, the whole, the whole thing about gravity's rainbow towards the beginning of the movie too, where he says, do you ever read that book? Me either, but I like the (laughs) phrase. But it's a great title. <laughs> he's he's just so good in this, and, and it's just it's just great over the top, florid, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Southern genteel detective. Well, he's very much like a fish out of water because the story takes place in New England. Yeah, Boston. Yeah, in Boston, yeah, outside so, of a small town. Outside, yeah, yeah. So him being from the South. And then going to the New England area, he's very much like a fish out of water accent mm. and everything. I think somebody calls him Foghorn Leghorn at one point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, even Chris Evans' that. character was like, what is this, CSI KFC? Yes, that was that, that was the line. Just that, that, that Benoit Blanc of it all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, such a great name, too. Not Benoit. Hercule Poirot, but Benoit Blanc. <laughs> Benoit Blanc. And that's the thing. I actually see where they could make a franchise out of Benoit Blanc. Oh, yeah. That's we, actually yeah. I was going to be. totally open to. Well, uh, assuming. Uh, <laughs> I want to say it, but I don't want to say it. It's just, um, yes, you could do a franchise, but I don't know if that would be the most appropriate thing to do just because of who how his character kind of evolves through the course of the movie that's true but yeah that was actually going to be something i would ask you guys is could you see because i was thinking the same thing too a franchise for him after bond 
being, you know, this not necessarily called the Knives Out franchise, but like a Benoit Blanc. Yeah. Well, he's Chronicles. not he's not quite Inspector Clouseau, but mm. <laughs> kind of kind of leans in that direction. <laughs> yeah, he's like he he does, but he doesn't. He's actually yeah. more competent than it seems like he is at one point too. And you get to the end of the film, you realize he kind of knew what was going on all along, and some of that was not necessarily playing dumb. But I think that he did have an adversary for lack of a better term that was just as smart as he was but he wasn't stupid he yeah. you know he he knew what there, there was something fishy well from the start. okay in the traditional um way that these types of detectives the hercule proros and columbos and uh, miss marples they usually present um themselves as being kind of um not very bright or kind of goofy or something to where the other characters underestimate them. So to some degree he was doing that. Um, but very quickly those detectives demonstrate at least to the audience that they are sharp and they start picking up clues and the Sherlock Holmes thing of, Oh, I see a little dirt on your shoe. So I know that you were so-and-so and it was kind of going in that direction with this but the thing is that the audience was one step ahead of him. And early on when they would show like flashbacks and then he would put the clues together like, okay, how exactly? So the, the structurally speaking from the movie standpoint, it wasn't him coming up to a conclusion and then showing the audience. It was showing the audience first and then having him catch up to the audience, which I thought was an interesting way of doing things. And and to some degree, he was he was catching up, but then there were other times where he was completely clueless. <laughs> yeah, so. I think it's interesting that Daniel Craig has this sideline in playing eccentric Southerners because yeah. if you saw his last non-Bond film was Logan Lucky, it's a completely different kind. A, it's not even the same region of the South. It's a completely different accent, but it's a completely different kind of character. And far from being the detective, he's a criminal in the other film. Uh, but he's equally good in it. And he's, he's a, he's really good at comedy. He is. Yeah. And B, he's really good at playing a Southerner. Well, that's a, that's an English thing apparently, because if you want someone to play, to have a convincing Southern accent, you get a British person. Which is interesting because the first time I heard him talk, cause I didn't ever hear him speak through any of the previews. I was just like, wait a minute. He's speaking in a Southern accent. <laughs> and now it's like, I don't want him to speak in any other type of accent. <laughs> And even more of the goofy moments, I think of him in the car listening to the music and singing while the ambulance is showing up. Just little silly moments like that. That Because it's like it goes from serious to funny, back to serious, yeah. back to funny. So it, it plays on you know different emotions back and forth, which I, I think was great. Well, you know, another thing that's really funny about the, the whole thing, with the whole family are pretty much almost all entirely terrible people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yet none of them really did anything wrong per se, yeah. other than, other than obviously the, yeah. the mastermind. <laughs> and none, none of them, you know, they're just bad people. They're not, but they're not, <laughs> they're not evil. Evil. Yeah. They're not villains. <laughs> they're just bad people. And, and you know, the ending, I think kind of summed it up, you know, with, with um, what happens with the characters at the very end of the movie, um, kind of illustrates. Uh, oh, that point. the last scene of the film is just brilliant. Yeah. I, I, oh, I don't want to give great. anything away, but the, 
it's 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 a mirror of the opening scene of the movie actually yeah. mm-hmm. uh but uh it's such a great skewed mirror of that of that just I, I love this movie. <laughs> I do need to go see it again just to catch a lot of the nuances like that. And, and also to what I enjoy seeing in movies that are complex like this and where it has a surprise ending um, to go back and see if all the clues are there to build. And Derek, you've seen it a couple times. Mm-hmm. So I guess, what did you think the second time you saw it? I definitely picked up on things that I didn't see the first time. I, I think the, that's the case with really any movie you see is that you notice things because you're you're also I think looking like your mindset is okay what did I miss the mm-hmm. previous time so there there are things that you can pick up on so it's definitely a movie that I think you can watch multiple times and honestly I want to go see it for a third time like yeah. that that's truly how much I enjoyed this movie I almost ducked my head in knowing that we were going to be talking about this today I almost ducked my head in Saturday to watch at least part of it again i'd gone to see jojo rabbit and mm. after you I, missed I that podcast <laughs> yeah after after i after that was over i had i still had a little time on my hands and i thought about sneaking in and watching you know the last hour half an hour whatever it was of, of the film again but i ended up deciding not to i kind of wish i had but i i, I want to go and see the whole thing again well and that's the thing is i i guess i've become so accustomed to once summer movies are over that's kind of the end of my theater experience for the year but there have been so many good movies over the last couple of months with jojo rabbit the lighthouse uh ford versus ferrari and now knives out yeah well we're into award season now so all of the prestige quality quote-unquote films are coming out this time of year between actual theatrical releases and now of course uh, every netflix uh Contender is starting to go onto the service now that it's played three or four weeks. Like the Irishman. Irishman, Marriage Story, My Name is Dolomite. I I need to get around seeing all three of those as well, really, before I make a year-end list. So, Well, what's interesting, Hollywood Reporter uh, had an article this morning that, or I guess a couple days ago, (laughs) that um, talked about um, this past weekend, other than Frozen 2, the other four movies in the top five were original films and all four of them overperformed. That's Which great. Which is great. Yeah. And, you know, Knives Out um, brought in $41.7 million for, for the first five days and that was double the expectations. That's and, awesome. And the thing is that I believe if I read correctly, the movie, the budget was 40000 I mean, I'm sorry, $40 million. So, yeah, 40 million 40,000 was just Jamie Lee Curtis's yeah. Yeah. bill. Yeah. So 40 million dollars and it brought in 41.7 million the first weekend. So it made its budget back that first weekend. Now everything else will be marketing costs and everything and then at some point it'll, it'll make a profit. Except um, in Hollywood it doesn't. Well, nothing yeah, ever turns a profit. Nothing make a profit. But but the thing is though that um for a film that ha- has this much star power to have cost relatively little and of course we're talking about 40 million dollars being not very much money um that that says a lot as far as if you have a really good movie and good word of mouth people are going to go see it Mm -hmm. what is crazy because you you mentioning that is this movie actually does have a decent amount of star power it does it, it it feels it feels like an indie movie. Mm-hmm. More than decent. It's really an all-star cast yeah. <laughs> well, you, for the most part. I mean, you get down to some of the, the, the young characters. and Well, but even, I mean, 
even the the alt right troll kid yeah, that was the Jayden kid Martell, from from yeah. it yeah mm-hmm. so and he's had a pretty good career so far yeah yeah but you know Jamie Lee Curtis Michael Shannon Don Johnson Tony Collette yeah. Chris Evans Christopher, Christopher Plummer, Plummer yeah. <laughs> it's, you know Daniel Craig Lakeith Stansfield who was in uh, my favorite movie of last year Sorry to Bother You uh, you know e- even in some of these smaller roles it's and, pretty and, substantial and I, actors and I need to point out Noah Segan also plays one of the cops. Uh, he's been in every Ryan Johnson film. Oh, he's the 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 over eager state trooper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that character. And he's great. Yeah, he's, he's just so good. Well, you mentioned to me the other day is that Ryan Johnson's cousin yes. is actually wrote the score, and he's written the score for all of Ryan Johnson's movies except for The Last Jedi. Correct. Yeah, I guess they had to use John Williams. To yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he he insisted, you know. Yeah, that is Nathan Johnson. Mm-hmm. Well, even you know from the very beginning of the movie, when you hear, I don't even know how you'd really describe it, but the the music was just so fitting from mm-hmm. start to finish, and even the opening shot with the close push into the house, and you see the dogs running towards the camera is just everything about that movie was great. From the music, mm-hmm. the acting, the cinematography, I thought was great. Which you know, the, <laughs> talking about the cinematography, there was one shot. About midway through the movie, and where um, all the characters are kind of ganging up on on the one, and she's trying to get out of the house, and everybody's gathering around her. The camera is locked down, and then suddenly it's lifted yeah, you up. You see it like it's lifted off a tripod, and, and it literally looks like. And we, I was talking with a couple guys about this the other day, and how you know they were pointing out that it was as if it literally was pulled off the tripod. There was like a jerk in it, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter because it's like, Oh, we're just lifting the camera up and going and throwing it in the middle of this, this chaos. And it worked. And it was such a fun little trick that I don't think the general public would pick up on it, but it was like, that's kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't take away from the viewing experience at Mm -hmm. all to me. Well, I just I think the the film is a masterpiece, and I think it's it proves that you can make a film that's a masterpiece that does not have to be ponderous and yeah. look at me, I'm doing something really great here. It can still be light and entertaining and masterful at yeah. the same time. Well, in one primary location, and which was an amazing location. I mean, that house. I mean, they must have built that i mean that must have been a built oh set. the the set decoration on the on this oh it film. was great i mean the just that centerpiece seat that they <laughs> do all the interrogations and in with all the knives surrounding the the first that like like it's the 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 uh the iron throne in game of thrones yeah <laughs> just amazing well it, the the house in itself to me was almost like a character because mm-hmm. in every murder mystery film like the location plays a very integral part yeah and everything, like having, you know, the little study, the office, every room, it... it the hidden doorways. Yeah, <laughs> the trick window, all that stuff. Now, it was... That house was well, amazing. It, it fit in the character of the owner of the house, though. Yeah. And, and, and that the entire house was a reflection of that character. Yeah, because he was a murder mystery author. Yeah. And so in a lot of the stuff that was in the house were things that he wrote about and that he included in his book. In, in, which was kind of a, a cool little thing. Well, yeah. it reflects that, and it also reflects the family, and that the, the family, several members of the family, like to make out that they're 
self-made people. And of course it comes out that no, they're not. That <laughs> none of them would have gotten anywhere without dad because yeah. dad really is the one who was, was self-made mm-hmm. and the, the self-made real estate entrepreneur. Well, yeah, she started out with a million dollar loan from daddy. Doesn't sound like anybody I know. Does that sound like <laughs> something from real life to you? I, I, I don't know if there's any, who's a real estate mogul that uh, got a big loan from dad, but acts like they're self-made. I don't know. I have no clue who you're talking about. <laughs> Amazingly, that character was not the alt-right troll. Right. No. <laughs> um, I, I do have to, to make a point also that um, the cast seemed to be just having a blast. Yes. I mean, they, truly looked like they were having fun making this movie and just really getting into the characters and you know even you know even the ones that were like the secondary characters shout out to Ricky Lindholm who's one of my <laughs> favorites she's a member of Garfunkel and Oates the comedy musical duo oh. she's uh, Michael Shannon's wife in the film and she has a very small part but she's great in it yeah funny enough the first time i was watching it it took me like a scene or two to realize that was Michael Shannon Oh, he's yeah, he's so good. Yeah, he was great. Because I was like, his voice sounds so familiar, and then it just hit me. I was like, oh, it's General Zod. Yeah, the the (laughs) the ones that I I almost didn't recognize Ricky Lindholm and Frank Oz, I didn't recognize until his name came up in the credits. When he when he showed up, I turned to Derek. Is that Frank Oz? He's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. And sure enough, we stayed around for the credits, and it was Frank Oz. Because I was trying to listen to his voice, like, okay. He didn't that... sound at all like <laughs> Miss Piggy. <laughs> you know, or, or Yoda, you know. <laughs> but, of course, you know, he had worked with Ryan Johnson in his last film. So yeah. mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense that he put him in this one. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up, would you guys hope to see more movies like this? The Murder Mystery? I hope to does... make movies like this. Oh, I, right? <laughs> yes. Same. In fact, one reason why I went to see it... Um, or I wanted to see it so badly was because it bears superficial similarity to a screenplay that I wrote that I'm currently developing. Award-winning screenplay. Award-winning yep. screen, yeah. And uh, so I wanted to see how the, uh, mine is a suspense thriller, not a murder mystery. So it's a little different, but I just wanted to see how, you know, the, the there's a lot of similarities as far as how the story plays out. And, um, so not to take inspiration, but just basically seeing, let's see how he did it and, you know, what I can steal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if we aren't due for a revival because, of course, we had the remake of Murder on the Orient Express mm-hmm. a year or two ago. It was, very, do was very the successful. Nile. They're yeah. doing Death in the Nile. Now Knives Out has been very successful. So maybe we are going to see a, a return of the... Certainly somebody's going to say, oh, well, you know, these two movies made money and let's let's yeah. see if we can make a few more of these and... Some of them will be good and some of them will not be good. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, some people didn't like Murder on the Orient Express. I heard a lot of uh, moaning and groaning and complaining about that film from uh, a lot of Christie purists. I am not a huge Agatha Christie buff, so I enjoyed the film. Yeah, I'm was. a huge Agatha Christie uh, buff. I, I mean, I, when I was in high school, I was constantly walking around with an Agatha Christie book in my hand. Um, and Murder on the Orient Express was, you know, of course, you know, one of the, the top on the list. But um, I liked that movie. Uh, I just didn't like Hercule Poirot's mustache. I thought that was ridiculous, which was, <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be a ridiculous mustache. That's just, That was just kind of odd a lot of the griping i heard was just about brana in general not necessarily about the mustache yeah. but people there were the, the people that i know who consider themselves big christy buffs hated him mm-hmm. he's not my favorite pro 
but there's been several and he, you know enough people saw this that there is going to be another one mm-hmm. like it or not yep. so i personally hope there is a revival just cuz to me these movies are are fun in the very least like i had pure fun watching knives out both times that i got to see it so if we see more movies like that that are that entertaining i'm all for it Oh, and one one of the cast members that we didn't really mention, by the way, was Chris Evans, yeah. who was just really phenomenal. And I mean, he's kind of like missing for the good chunk of the film, and then when he shows up, he really makes an impact. Oh yeah, yeah. and he's definitely not Captain America in this one. No, no. <laughs> not, crazy. not remotely. No, it's crazy that we have a movie with James Bond, <laughs> Captain America, and Laurie Strode, and General Zod, and General Zod, and yeah. General Von Pat. Uh, von, I'm sorry, Baron Von Trapp. Ooh, I got that name <laughs> messed up. Baron Von Trapp. And and uh, the kid from it. Right. Yeah. Which Steve says that I should watch, but I don't know that I'm quite ready. You should for the, watch. I don't know that I'm quite ready for the It movies yet. <laughs> we'll see. They, they, they made a movie with a kid from It, and it wasn't Finn Wolfhard, yeah. <laughs> amazingly enough. Uh, last thing, do you guys want to plug the Comedy Festival coming up in a couple of weeks? Uh, absolutely. The Pensacola Indie Fringe and Comedy Festival is coming up January 2nd through 5th. Steve and I are both on the uh, the committee for this event. Taking over downtown Pensacola for four days of every kind of comedy you can think of. We have sketch comedy. We have improv. We have stand-up. We have musical theater. A film festival. We have a film festival. We have... Uh, murder mystery dinner theater in yeah. fact which goes in, hand in hand with knives out in fact in probable cause mystery theater is putting on a brand new show called murder gras at the palafox house so uh, you can go to that have dinner be a part of the show figure out who done it win prizes that's one of the events our headliners for the festival are gilbert gottfried uh, Donnell Rawlings, who was on Chappelle's show, he was, uh, people know him as Ashy Larry. He was beautiful in The Player Haters. Uh, great. Uh, he's also in Jane Silent Bob Reboot this year. Uh, great comic actor, but also a great stand-up comic. And Orny Adams, who was in the Jerry Seinfeld comedian documentary, uh, has n- a number of Netflix and uh, Showtime specials. Uh, he'll be performing. And then Evil Dead the Musical is returning to Vinyl Music Hall. We had a big, successful run of that in January of this year coming back for four shows in January of this year as part of the festival. There'll be workshops and game shows and film screenings and panel discussions. I think we're going to bring back Defending Bad Movies. Am I right, Derek? Yes. Looking forward to that. Defending Bad Comedies. Yes, Defending Bad Comedies. (laughs) I don't know if we can defend bad comedies. That's going to be a trick. Yeah. Uh, But anyway. uh, I wonder how many Adam Sandler movies are going to be on that list. Everything as, many as I put in the everything post fifty first dates, I think probably <laughs> qualifies. Uh, but uh, for more information, please go to comedypensacola.com. You can find out about everything that's happening as part of the festival. You can get your tickets. Weekend passes start at just forty dollars and get you into sixty nine <laughs> events. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. We hope to see everybody there. Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and discuss Knives Out. You're welcome. Thank you. Happy to be joined with one of my special guests this week, the lead actress from a movie you may have heard me talk about once or twice, The Parker Syndrome, Miss Brittany Least. How are you today? Good. How are you? Doing good. We're enjoying this uh, wonderful weather we're having here in Florida today. Yes. Humid one day, 
rainy the next, and I think it's going to be cold tomorrow. Maybe. I have no idea. <laughs> we'll have to see what the state has in store for us. Right. So before we dive into the Parker Syndrome, because I definitely want to talk about the, the film screening that we're doing, what was it that kind of sparked your initial interest in acting? Because I know you have more of a theater background than film. So what, what was it that kind of sparked your interest in that? Um, I kind of always grew up on stage. Like I started with dance when I was like really, really little and then, um, gotten acting more as a teenager and then really got focused on it. Like in my later teens and I've just loved it ever since. What is it about it specifically that you enjoy so much? Um, I really like creating a character. Um, so just getting to know that character and finding out like what makes them tick and different things. Well, that's something that I've always been kind of envious about when it comes to actors is that you essentially get to play someone else, whether it's it might be an exaggerated version of your real life personality or someone completely different. Like I could imagine like playing a villain would be fun because you get to right. you get to do things that you wouldn't get to do in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have uh, like a certain role that you're drawn to or do you just do you want to try and do everything? Um, I mean, I like when I try can try everything and like um, try a role that I haven't done before, but I'm really liking the dramatic stuff more lately. Um, so I guess just like when, you know, when you watch something like go to a movie or play or something and you leave with a like, oh, that changed the way I think about this. Mm-hmm. I really like those. Yeah. It's interesting because when we were making the Parker syndrome and leading up to the premiere of it, because a lot of things that are made around here, I feel like, are more on the comedic side. Like you think of Kitty Get a Job and other, you know, shorts that I've seen that have more of a humorous twist to it. Right. My initial thought was, and it was really more of a concern than anything. How are people going to react when they see that it's not a comedy? Because there are a couple of humorous moments in it, but for the most part, it, it's a it's a drama. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of concerned about that, but you know, those were quickly dissipated right. after the movie was over. So I, I think with with drama, comedy's great, don't get me wrong, but drama really drives into, especially if it's something you can relate to, whether it's an event in your life or something you knew someone else that, that you know, has gone through that. Mm-hmm. When you do a dramatic role, do you tap into something that maybe happened in your life that helps you play that role? Or how how deep do you go into preparation for a character? Um, I guess it kind of really depends on the role. But like I will try to find movies um, that are related. Like maybe the characters are going through something similar um, or just different situations where you can like tap into the emotion that you're wanting to get. Yeah. So, yeah. Plays and scripts and stuff are all helpful. Yeah. So I guess diving into the Parker Syndrome itself, because a lot of this is... It's stuff I ask on the podcast, and it's also my personal curiosity because I, I haven't really had the conversation with anybody who got involved. What was it that drew you to want to be a part of it? Um, well, I guess your like initial post was um, like I could tell it was a drama just from that, and it was like a little bit mysterious. Like you didn't give a whole bunch of background, so I was like, hmm. <laughs> so it, I was kind of drawn to it right away. Yeah, I try to keep the descriptions vague mm-hmm. because. Steve Wise was a huge help with me through the entire process from, you know, helping write the script to proper casting protocols and things like that. So I was told early on 
write a description, but keep it vague enough to where it kind of draws interest. And Mm -hmm. I guess that worked. Yeah. Funny behind the scenes thing with that. So the characters were actually a little bit different up until I made the actual casting decisions because I was on vacation and I remember watching your audition uh, video that you sent Mm -hmm. along with James and Annalise in my hotel room. And I was thinking, okay, well, the the story is based around a family. So whoever I cast has to, one, act like they could be in a family together. Mm-hmm. They have to look like a family. So I took what I thought, the proper um, combination of characters that I thought would work. And then I would splice the videos together because I sent you guys the same scenes. Okay. And I spliced them together as if in a way I was watching you guys perform together okay. without having you perform together. Okay. And it was that combination that you know I thought ultimately worked. That's cool. So it was like a, I guess a creative editing thing right. on my stance. But you know, I thought you guys had what would be the best chemistry together. So that was why you guys all got cast the way that you did. That's cool. Yeah, it was... It was a very interesting process for me. And then what was it about the, I guess, the Emma character that, you know, once you got the full script, what were your initial thoughts on it? Um, I like that she, like, her goal was to bring the family back together. Um, Like, she could have been a little selfish at the beginning, like, with the boyfriend thing and everything. She was just thinking about herself. But then in the end, like, you could tell that her heart, she really wanted to bring everyone together. Well, I think it's, and this was something that evolved over time. It was something that you can almost see the character mature and grow right. as the story progresses because you know she's not in a very good spot in the very beginning. She doesn't get along with her mom. Mm-hmm. She's dating a guy who, and I think we've all been in that situation before that everybody's like, ah, it's probably not a good idea, but mm-hmm. you don't really listen anyway. Mm-hmm. And then at times find out the hard way. But then... One of my two favorite scenes in the movie are honestly the two scenes with you and Jesse in the apartment because mm-hmm. they're they're so similar but so different. Right. Because in the first one, you're coming to your brother for advice, but then the flip side after you know the climax of the film happens, mm-hmm. you're giving advice to him. So the shoes on the other foot. So yeah. they they're so similar, but they're opposite sides of the same coin right that i think was was really cool yeah just like two sides of her character yeah as we were shooting was there a certain scene that you enjoyed doing more than others like is there one that really stood out now that you know we're we were talking earlier it's crazy to think we're already a year away from when shooting initially happened mm-hmm. is there a scene that stands out to you as a favorite um I, I mean, I really like shooting the first scene. It took forever, but it was just like we were all kind of excited and it was new and we were like trying different things. So it was cool like to get exactly what you wanted on that scene, even though we, we took a whole bunch of takes. And But it was cool experimenting and such. Yeah, and it's the one scene that has the entire family together. Yeah. So it's, that was one that I knew it was probably going to be the hardest other than mm-hmm. the party, yeah. which we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Uh-huh. But it was cool seeing it unfold for the first time Mm because that was my first time ever directing anything Mm -hmm. and it was only like the third set I've ever been on in my entire life so seeing it initially unfold and yet did take forever and it was one that if I were to go back now I would do it probably completely differently where it wouldn't take as long okay 
but it's good to have the the proper coverage and everything mm-hmm. and then seeing you just seeing everything unfold mm-hmm. i think was really cool yeah other than the two scenes with you and jesse mm-hmm. i think we have to throw in the party because we did the whole thing in one continuous take which mm-hmm. when that initial idea was brought up to me my response was what uh-huh. Wait, what what do you mean why would we do this yeah. <laughs> yes I think it was the most challenging, but it was the most rewarding uh-huh. because there's so much cool things that are happening in that entire scene from having, you know, the extras come in, interact with you and Andrew. Mm-hmm. Like one group comes in, they leave. Another group comes in, they leave. Mm-hmm. It really unfolds like a real life frat party. Uh-huh. Anyway, so what when that idea was brought up, what was your initial thought on it? Um, well, I think it sounds like well, to, to me, it sounded easier at the beginning because, like, I'm in theater. So, like, everything is one take. Yeah. But then also you have, with film, you have all these different, like, angles and you have to, like, be towards the camera at different spots. And so, I mean, for theater, you just always face the audience. And so it's it's different with film and theater. I'm not sure if you know this, but I had a backup plan in case that didn't work out. Because my, my plan was to run through it. We're going to try and shoot it four or five times. And if it's... If it's just not working, then we'll shoot, you know, the master shot with you two together, then just you, just Andrew, and, okay. you know, shots to go around that. But Andrew had to leave early to go to an audition. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to make this work somehow. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take nearly as long as I thought it would. I think we were done by, again, it was because we kind of had to be. Yeah. But it was nice to be able to be done early and relax a bit before we had to move on to mm-hmm. the next location. Yeah. But it, it was a, the whole thing was just a, a really cool experience. And I know you and I haven't really talked since the premiere happened. Mm-hmm. That whole night kind of, I don't want to speak for anybody else that was involved, but it really kind of blew me away because of the amount of people that showed up. Yeah. What was your thoughts? Like what was going through your mind as you were watching it for the first time? Um, it was really cool just seeing like, cause we all had the pieces, but just to see it all come together and with Emily's soundtrack was amazing and just, it was all together and it was, it was cool to see. I was actually introduced to her through Steve cause mm-hmm. she was at one of the, the filmmaker meeting greets and he okay. had suggested to have her do the score. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, she used to work at, um, Digital Boardwalk, mm-hmm. which is the IT company that the blue wahoos use okay so she did a fantastic job with the score like to Mm -hmm. me it would not be as good as it is without you know her score yeah yeah so let me ask you this um because you guys have i won't say given me a hard time about it but it has been suggested that you guys would want to do a follow-up really (laughs) (laughs) we suggested that it's only come up once or twice in conversation the read through yeah (laughs) Yeah. read through Mm -hmm. after shooting Mm-hmm. premiere every <laughs> every screening that i have done the first question that is asked is when are we getting another one yes so i'm going to put you on the spot here what would you do for a sequel um didn't we talk about a family run trip <laughs> yeah almost like a national land <laughs> yeah. type of thing maybe emma goes away to college could be that too yes i don't know i'm not sure i'll have to think about it i'll get back to you <laughs> It's one of those things that, you know, it's fun to sit around and think, oh, well, you know, I'd love to see these characters go in that direction mm-hmm. and everything. So 
But I guess we'll we'll say in closing, um, we do have the screening coming up on which, when this comes out, people will have heard about two or three different times on the podcast. But what are you looking forward to most about this upcoming film screening? Um. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the other films also that I haven't got to see. Um. But also just. Like seeing it again, I I just enjoy um, seeing it, and probably all the cast, our cast members who will be there, James and Annalise, hopefully, and Jesse, mm-hmm. and hopefully Elise will be back. <laughs> so, hopefully so. Yes. Yeah, because she's off at boot camp, right? Yeah. Which we were talking earlier, it kind of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's pretty cool, though. Yeah. One other question I want to ask you because you've done both now. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between acting for film as opposed to acting on stage? Um, film's a lot more intimate. Like, you can't fake anything, really, emotions or anything. Theater's just bigger, and you're on stage, and, like, they say you have to make sure the person in the back row, the little old lady in the back row can hear you, and so it's just more, it's bigger and more theatrical, and I guess you can phone it in sometimes a little more, (laughs) just because you have to be big. Mm -hmm. Is theater easier for you because you've done it longer? Because I... The thing that impresses me the most about theater acting is that there's really no margin for error when it comes to saying your lines. Mm-hmm. If you forget something on set, you can say cut, yeah. look at the script, and then you just do it again. Mm-hmm. But with theater, if you mess up in a way, you have to make it part of the show, Yeah, I feel like. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, having each other's backs and improvs. And, so you really have to trust your cast, which is a cool experience, too. Because yeah. you become a little family, you see each other every night, and yeah. Well, that's how we felt after Parker yeah. Syndrome, is that we had a smaller crew, but we all just bonded yeah. so quickly. And that, that was something that was really cool to see from my perspective, is seeing the cast bond mm-hmm. together almost like a real-life family, which was good because you guys were supposed to be one. Right, yeah. Even the, the crew, you know, we had a small crew. I mean, we had Kevin, I think we had two or three grips yeah. for day one. We had a few more people on day two. Mm-hmm. But we all just kind of bonded together. Yeah. And that really helped with the intimacy level, I guess, too. So, like, you didn't have, like, eight people running around when you're trying to, like, be emotional. And Yeah. So, yeah. For me, it was interesting in the sense that I had heard stories about how people bond mm-hmm. almost not by choice in a way. And I got that a little bit from the one day that I worked on Servi. And Servi had a little bit of a bigger crew. But, again, the same thing we all work together extremely well and there there's such long days when you're on set that you don't want to be miserable and hate each other because that was something that I kind of made it one of my goals is to keep the mood light Mm -hmm. which I thought you know we all did yeah and everything so I thought it was it was a really cool experience Mm -hmm. yeah it was great yeah I want to thank you again for it (laughs) no it's uh thank you guys for everything I mean you guys took something that I came up with I guess now of this recording two years ago. Wow. And then we made it a reality. Well, well, I'll ask you this one more thing in closing. So the Parker Syndrome has done, I feel like it's done fairly well with festivals and awards and everything. As someone who was involved, what's been your reaction to seeing? Because you, know, you and Jesse won a Best Actor and Best Actress Award from one mm-hmm. of the festivals that we did. I think it was the the White Unicorn International Film Festival, which is one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Right, yeah. How does that feel for you being a part of it to see it getting that type of recognition? Um, well, I'm really excited about it because like, I'm proud of the project and I'm really excited everyone else is loving it as much as I do. Yeah, it's something that 
I guess I didn't really have any expectations mm-hmm. going into it because I didn't want to say, oh, well, I hope it wins 20 awards right. or gets accepted to 30 festivals because I feel like that's setting yourself up for disappointment. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things, you know, I figured it would at least get into a couple of festivals, but mm-hmm. to see it, you know, you and Jesse winning the Best Actor and Best Actress Award, I mm-hmm. thought was fantastic. That's one of the awards as far as the overall film goes that I'm the most proud of because mm-hmm. I thought you two just, you know, did a phenomenal job well, with everything, you. and especially, you know, the, the scenes with you guys together to me is what ultimately drives the film. Okay. Yeah. Because as cool as you know, some of the shots might be and everything, what ultimately to me drives a film is the story that's told through the characters. Right, yeah. And the story is essentially about you two. So you know, I thought you guys did a phenomenal job carrying Thanks. it and everything. So. Cool, thank you. Yeah, and hopefully we'll continue to see more success in 2020. Yes. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much, Brittany, for taking the time to do the podcast and look forward to the film screening. Thank you. Happy to be joined with my very special guest this week, artist Sam Sawyer. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. I was just, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago um, about your upcoming series, Salem, and one of the voice actors who is in your series is actually a former guest of mine, but we'll we'll get to that in just a second. Um, I did want to get started with a little bit about your background, where you're originally from, and what was it that kind of inspired you to get into um, into the art industry? Yeah. So I, as a kid, I was always interested in art. I loved drawing. I loved creating. And, you know, I just, I went to my very first comic book convention when I was like, I think 16 or 17. I had no idea they existed before then. And when I finally went, I was just immediately hooked and amazed that, you could be an artist and you could, in fact, ha- make a living based off of just drawing artwork. And so from that point on, I just kind of had to I, I knew that was where I was meant to be and what I was meant to do. So I got my first table at a show and I actually started out um, making buttons, not so much artwork. You could classify buttons as a, a type of artwork, I think. Yeah. You totally can. I just, I started out that way rather than doing full on illustrations, which is kind of funny. No, I mean, you, you got to get your start somewhere. And it, it's funny you mentioned, you know, going to your first comic book convention. I remember growing up, I thought there was just Comic Con and that was it. And now, you know, years later, there's conventions pretty much everywhere. I mean, I've got one here, you know, where I live, Pensacon, that happens at the end of every February, around, you know, mid to late February. And you have ones in Atlanta, the Carolinas, Texas, of course, California. It seems like the Comic-Con industry is so huge right now, and there's a huge demand for it. Oh, yeah. It's just getting bigger and bigger every single day. It's crazy. Well, it provides just such a unique experience. You you get to go down, you know, what, what we call here Artist Alley, where you get to see original artwork by these really talented artists that you would have never met otherwise and you get to meet you know celebrities it might have been a voice actor or just an actor in general that you idolized growing up all kinds of cool panels it is it's such a 
a fun experience. And I, after going to several, you know, here and throughout the country, it, it's a really, really cool thing. It can be very draining, but it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah. It's so beyond incredible. It's so amazing. I just, I, there's such a interesting environment, like both for creatives and people who just want to meet all of the people that they look up to. It's, it's just incredible. So have you gone to conventions both as a fan and as a guest? I have. Yeah. I, I mostly just go to, you know, as a guest or to sell artwork and all of that. But every year I, Mostly, I usually reserve San Diego Comic-Con for my Just Go as a Fan convention just because there's so much stuff and there's so much to do. You know, you don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be confined to a table for one, for that whole weekend. I want to go run around. Well, there's so much going on and there's always some big news story that happens, you know, whether it's like a, from a Marvel movie or something along those lines and you want to, you want to be a part of it. You don't want to be stuck in one spot and then just... You know, hearing I can imagine hearing about all this cool stuff going on and you know, you'd be confined to one spot and you can't go see it when it's so close by. Yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, you want to be there and you want to be able to go witness it and you want to have your own schedule for once, you know? Yeah, for sure. Now, as a guest, what's the process that you go through to prep for really any convention? You know, do you do a lot of artwork in advance that you sell? Do you do some of it at the convention? Like walk me through your process of getting ready to go to a convention. Well, you know, it's different for everybody, but in, for what I do is that I, I do mostly posters and tarot decks for what I bring to sell at shows. And typically I try to make sure I order everything I need from my printer at least a week or two in advance so that I'm not scrambling because, and that, because, you know, I mean, eventually that's always going to happen. You're going to end up scrambling somehow, but I try to avoid that the best I can. And then the, it's always the night before I have to leave for the show. I wheel out my big suitcases that I use for traveling for the conventions. And I'm always like rearranging them and cleaning them up and, throwing everything I can into a suitcase and it becomes the game of how much can I fit in a suitcase that can only weigh 50 pounds. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, (laughs) it can be, but it's worth it. Oh, for sure. And I can imagine, you know, whenever you have somebody who will buy a a piece of your, your work, it's got to feel pretty gratifying. It's amazing. It's knowing that somebody likes what I drew that much that they wanted to buy it and either put it on their wall or use it as a tarot deck. It was kind of, it's, it's an incredible feeling. Well, that's something that I I was, you know, I was doing research for this interview. I read that you actually designed multiple tarot decks. I'm not, I'm not very familiar with tarot decks. So what exactly are those and what inspired you to make them? So a tarot deck is, you know, like it's those kinds of cards and that full deck of like, you know, I'm sure I don't know if you've heard of like the, you know, you have those cards that have the magician, the fool, mm-hmm. the yep. emperor, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a 78 card. Um, it's a 78 card deck and it's used for it's used for many different reasons and purposes. Uh, but one of the biggest and most well known would be having a. Uh, 
would be using them for like predicting the future, answering questions. Each card basically has a different meaning to it and a different definition. And so when you ask a question per se, the definition of that card or how you feel when you look at that card basically becomes your answer. Interesting. So what, what was it that inspired you to create your, your custom decks of tarot cards? Well, I mean, I really wanted to learn how to read tarot. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a lot to learn because there's 78 uh, unique definitions that go into memorizing everything with tarot. And so I thought the best way, for me at least, to learn how to read would be to, to design my own deck. That's fantastic. It's, it, I guess it's one of those things that if you, it's like that classic saying, if you want something, you know, do it yourself. And if you have the ability to create a custom thing of something that you really like, you know, why not? Yeah, exactly. So kind of backtracking a little bit, did you go to any type of an art school or, or did you, you teach yourself to, to draw these things? I'm all self-taught. Oh, wow. That's impressive. You, you, <laughs> Thank you. You think of a lot of people who will go to, to art school or graphic design school, but especially with today's day and age when you have you know, a lot of tutorials with Photoshop, and if you don't mind me asking, what, what type of programs do you use? Because uh, I, I, I use a lot of the Adobe programs in both you know, video editing, podcast editing, and you know, I use Photoshop to make you know, promo graphics and whatnot. Like what, what type of programs did you teach yourself to use? So I'm definitely the most familiar with Photoshop. Um, I use the, currently I use the 2017 version just because it has my favorite brush. And in the newer versions, they decided to get rid of it, which was so rude of Photoshop there. Adobe um, does that. <laughs> so I'm the most familiar with Photoshop. And I, I got it when I was, I think I was 11 years old when I got my very first subscription to Photoshop. And so... I'd like to think I'm very familiar with it, but the way that I do things is so not technical. It's almost like the artist's way of doing things, you know? So it's a little backwards. No, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's the good thing about Photoshop is that you can really use it in any way you want. To me, there's no real right way to use it. Everyone has their own different style, their different methods. Because, you know, I, I, I professionally, I work for a minor league baseball team. I, I work in our creative department. And my style and the way I use Photoshop or really any of the Adobe programs is so different than, you know, what my supervisor does. Yeah. So we, we just have different styles, but it, it works both ways. So it's Yeah, cool. it, it, as long as you know how to do it, it works. For sure. And I guess now transitioning into your series, Salem, what was it that inspired you to, you know, one, want to do an animated series and then I know you did a Kickstarter campaign, which you hit the goal for, which was and surpassed it, which was was pretty awesome. Um, what was it that inspired you to create this series? You know, it's I've kind of kind of I've kind of just learned in life that when opportunities present themselves, you kind of just run with it. And about a year ago, I met my my partner in crime, Randy. And he's been super amazing with helping us kind of getting our foot in the door with um, hiring our talent and getting the ball rolling and all of that stuff. And basically, 
I just, I was already really inspired to create stories. I loved writing comics and drawing and just creating characters. And so when I started fiddling around with the idea that creating a cartoon series would be a lot of fun, but I had no idea how to do it, you know, I, I reached out to Randy and was like, Hey, I've got a really great idea. I, I just, I don't know where to get started. And so Randy was so incredible and has been by my side ever since with kind of creating this and bringing this to life and mostly helping out with all that, all that technical, technical jazz. And it's just been really, it's been an interesting journey. And sometimes I can't even really describe like what it's been like because everything's happened so quickly. I'm just kind of going with the flow. Well, that's a good approach too. And having somebody who, in a way, balances you out, you know, making a good team, it, it makes it really successful. So how did you come up with the with the character Salem and what the initial story is? So the original story for Salem began when I was in middle school. I just, I had this cute drawing of a monster that I really liked, and it's kind of followed me throughout my entire life. And so when the idea presented that I wanted to write a story about this character that I drew... I wanted to basic I wanted to basically start it from a different kind of perspective and try and tell a story that no one had really heard before or I guess like even if you have heard the story you you're hearing it from a different perspective. And so I decided my foundation for the series was that I wanted to tell a story through the monster's perspective and create something just a little bit different. Well, it sounds like it's very story driven which is really cool. Yeah, very much so. And I've had a few people ask like, Oh, like, is this going to be, are these going to be just little one-off stories or are they going to be, is it going to follow a storyline? And it it definitely, I have a huge storyline planned out. Well, I feel like a lot of modern day cartoons focus more on visuals than anything else, which I, I love good visuals when it comes to movies or shows, but at their core, they're all about the storytelling. They're about the characters, whether it's a character that you can relate to, if it's a character that you maybe aspire to be, or if it's just something that's overall entertaining. It, to me, that's what filmmaking, making television, animated series. Yeah, I, I remember growing up loving animated series. There was such a huge library that I watched from you know, the Nickelodeon shows of the 90s, like Rocco's Modern Life, um, the the Marvel shows like Spider-Man and X-Men, those all told great stories. So, yeah. So having, you, you telling me that you created something with the intent to tell a good story, I, I think is awesome. Yeah, thank you. And not to mention, you know, you creating the story yourself, but you actually got a lineup of some really impressive voice talent, including uh, Laura Bailey, who was Trunks in Dragon Ball Z, Adam MacArthur, and Rob Paulson, whose voice is very well known throughout the 90s. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him uh, earlier this year as a promotion piece for Pensacon. And he was really, really fantastic. So when I saw that his name was attached to this, I I kind of geeked out a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, Rob is awesome. Yeah, he's he's has such a really cool career and just, you know, getting to hear his story from, you know, voicing some really iconic characters from the 90s and the fact that he's still doing it today uh, is is great. 
yeah, Rob's just working with him has been such a blast. He's so he's just one of the nicest people I've ever met. Definitely. So you launched a, a Kickstarter campaign. Early on, did you know that you were going to go a crowdfunding route? So originally, we kind of bounced around the idea of wanting to go with a network and pitching the series to a network and getting greenlit that way. But after kind of exploring that option, you know, when you go all, when you go with networks, you run the risk of your story facing changes and needing to adjust things accordingly to a network. And so we thought the best way to get started and to create our series, at least now and in the beginning, was to crowdfund ourselves and to tell the story the way that it was intended to so that people can see and hear and listen and watch to what we have, what we've been working so hard to create. And I've, I've had a few experiences with crowdfunding in the past, so I figured why not? Going the non-network route, there's so much... To me, the, the drawback of this is that there's just so much content out there that it's impossible to watch all of it. But the great yeah. thing is, is that when you have YouTube, you have Amazon Prime, you have Netflix, Hulu, and now even Disney+, Plus. you know, there's so many avenues to watch original content like I even think you know networks themselves like NBC are starting their own uh, streaming service so there's yeah. so many ways to consume content so I, I I think you made the right decision yeah exactly because we can we can do it the way the story is meant to be and get it started and establish the world in such a way that you know like you, you can't make changes I guess I don't know like we just we didn't want to keep people waiting we wanted to just jump right in so what was your reaction when you saw that you guys not only met, but very dominantly surpassed your your goal? You know, it was kind of, like, it's hard to even describe just because it was so, like, oh my gosh. Because I, I was so worried. I was like, oh no, like, can we do it? Like, 60 grand is a lot of money. Is that is that doable, like, on, an, on, a, on a story and on, a, on an IP that hasn't necessarily been seen before or no, not too many, no, not too many people know about it yet. So, you know, it was, there was definitely a risk involved, but it was totally worth it. And meeting that goal, just, it's just so, I don't even, I don't even have words to describe like how amazing it felt. And just knowing that we have all the support and people are excited and, and now we've got the real work to do, which is creating the show. It had to be heartwarming. It was. So now that your goal has been met, what is next for the Salem series? So right now, so with with Kickstarter, it takes about two weeks before, you know, for them to process payments and all of that. And while we're waiting for that to happen, we're not taking a break. We're working right now. Uh, we actually met with our writer a few days ago. And so we're getting that started and kind of getting our writer into the works and then we've also been establishing the LLC and all the business aspects of it basically to stay as professional and as official as we can and also we have 
We have a line producer that is going to be working on our budget so that we can make sure that all of the funds are being allocated exactly where they need to be and in the most and used in the most appropriate ways. Um, we also have a bunch of rewards that we need to fill for the Kickstarter. And so we've been kind of organizing all the artwork for that and finding everywhere that we're going to be getting our rewards from so that we can mail them out to all the amazing people that we have. And just kind of a lot of organization and a lot of getting everything together so that in the next few weeks, we can really get the ball rolling with the, writing the script and getting voices recorded, et cetera, et cetera. This could be the launch to a second career for you. You know that you've, you've had this tenure as an artist and now you're delving into another entertainment aspect. You, you could have a multi-career um guess multi-career career which is would be pretty great i mean i would not be opposed to that <laughs> definitely so other than salem um what's next for you do you have any upcoming uh conventions or any other projects that you want to plug so right now i'm actually finished with conventions for the 2019 season which i'm excited about just because i've done i believe i've done either 25 or 28 of them this year and I am ready for a break. But <laughs> um, I guess aside from Salem, I do have a new tarot deck that's going to be dropping into my Etsy next, or I guess this Wednesday, just in time for Black Friday. And so I'm just really excited to be able to continue drawing and creating and kind of getting to do a lot of different things. That's fantastic. Uh, I guess in closing, the only thing I have left to ask is, do you have any website or social media that you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? Yes, of course. Um, so you can find my personal like art and my adventures on my Twitter and Instagram, which is Sam Sam Sawyer, S-A-W-Y-E-R. And then you can find everything for Salem at I believe YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those places under the Salem series. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and talk about your career and talk about Salem. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next with it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you once again to Steve Wise, Julio Diaz, Brittany Least, and Sam Sawyer for taking the time to come on this jam-packed episode of the podcast. And it's going to stay that way for the next few weeks because I know there's only a few shows left of the year, but it's not going to slow down. Next week, I'll be chatting with three different filmmakers, Jeffrey Frame, Amelia Guiley, and Nick Smith. All are from the Pensacola area, and they all have films that will be featured in the Gulf Coast Filmmaker Showcase that we'll be putting on at Perfect Plain Brewing Company on December 21st in downtown Pensacola. The Parker Syndrome, Survey, Monsters Anonymous, and a few other films will be featured as well. And speaking of the Parker Syndrome, I'll actually be in Tampa this upcoming Sunday for the Tampa Bay Underground Film Festival, which the Parker Syndrome will be screened at as part of the Sunday night primetime drama spot. So should be a lot of fun. It's going to be the first film festival I've ever been to that's not in this area. So I'm only going to be there for one day, but Hope to absorb as much of the film festival experience as possible. But as far as other shows coming up, it is almost Star Wars time. So Steve will once again be returning to the podcast in a couple of weeks, along with Jason Robbins and Wally Phelps. And we're going to do a full 
Star Wars retrospective. Everything from the movies. We'll probably touch on the shows as well. I know we just reviewed The Mandalorian, but there have been a few more episodes that have come out since then. So really, anything Star Wars we're going to chat about. And I'll probably post a questions thread online. I think that might actually be kind of fun. But then after that will be when Rise of Skywalker comes out. So I'm hoping to have all three back the following week to review Rise of Skywalker. And that will be spoiler-filled, so... Go see the movie before you listen to that episode, but that's not for another couple of weeks. And then we'll be going right into 2020. I know we'll have uh, Pensacon coming up in February. I'll also be at the uh, Comedy Festival here in Pensacola in early January. So it's a really busy time, but it's, it's better to be busy than bored, as my grandpa used to say. But if you want to check out past episodes of this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for the Derek Diamond Experience, and don't forget to leave a review. If you leave a review, I become more visible to the podcasting public, which helps out the numbers and exposure for the show. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And of course, thank you as always to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night Drive Through and Light and Jazzy can be found on their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which you can find on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. And I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you for listening to this jam-packed episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. (laughs) 